Whoa, 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 my listeners, my loves. Today, I got something special for y'all. We have Dr. Cameron Williams in the studio with us today. Please, please, prepare yourselves for the episode that will come to be known as The Survival of the Fetter. Now, how you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just trying to keep up with my students and my research and, you know, um, contribute to, you know, some light and positive vibes in our society. So, that's yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's, we're glad to have you. We're totally glad to have you and got to be spreading that love and light. Today, we are going to be discussing survival of the fitter. Now, this term is kind of like a spin on the phrase that everybody's so familiar with, survival of the fittest, coined by Charles Darwin in his theory of evolution by natural selection. And, you know, I changed it because the survival of the fittest kind of insinuates an undertone of absolutism. And, you know, I try to stay away from those. You know, I try to stay away from absolutes. So survival of the fitter more so leans into the idea that, you know, this is just for right now. You know, this is what is at the moment. So to begin, I want to give a little bit of context, a little bit of background. What is the theory of evolution by natural selection? Well, this is an interesting concept you know a lot of people associate this with monkey we come from monkeys and stuff like that you know it's not really um that's not really what it's all about the bottom line living beings compete over resources and only the most fit in the environment survive it is as if nature selects them hence the term natural selection and useful traits emerge over time in any population of the same species you can see a variation a natural variation in traits. Over time, some traits are favored and others due to changes in the environment are not favorable and therefore they dissipate. Natural selection tailors the population, so to speak, and the fitter survives and gets to reproduce. The unfit species, of course, dies out and the populations diverge into new species. Now you wonder what would make something the most fit in the environment that it exists in. Um, is it the impact? Is it the long, what is it? Is it the amount of time it's able to survive? What it all comes down to is adaptability, the ability to adapt in order to thrive and survive. And of course, that is whatever is able to be there the longest. You know, this makes me think heavily about us being a product of nature. I mean, on the outside looking in, we behave as if we are separate from it. And this is mother, you know? And I wonder where this human tendency to believe ourselves separate from nature stems from. And I wonder if it can be rationalized outside of human logic. But I bring all of this up because if natural selection can be applied to nature and we are of nature, then can it be applied to our social nature? So, Dr. Williams, 
what is social Darwinism? Okay. So just kind of going back to your conversation about our connections to nature, I think that's such a great thing to, to emphasize because there's so much research showing how important it is to be a part of nature, you know? So just sitting outside in the morning for a brief period of time lowers your, your blood pressure, you know? Mm -hmm. And people who spend time out, just even looking at trees, for instance, it's good for your mental health. So when my wife and me were looking for a house, I kept saying it has to have nice views, you know? I need to have nice views. And um, our yard has this huge dip in the back, but the views are beautiful. It feels like you're in a tree house in the mountains. And I'm just like, I just need it for my well-being. Yeah. And so she didn't get it at first, but she, <laughs> she gets it now. And then we just try not to roll down the hill. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, social Darwinism, it's just based on Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. And it states that only the um, best characteristics of plants and animals will be passed on. So, you know, Charles Darwin was saying that um, qualities that, you know, are not best suited for survival in a particular environment uh, will not persist. And so social Darwinists argue that human characteristics operate in a similar manner. So as those in the natural world. And so it's interesting to kind of see how different traits are assigned to different groups over, you know, different periods of time. And typically positive traits have been assigned to white groups of people, whereas negative traits have been assigned to people of color. And based on social Darwinism, some people took this to mean that a population of people with positive traits could be developed, you know? So thinking of, you know, the survival of the fittest. So we could engineer the best population by limiting interaction between certain groups of people. And this happened through, for instance, like birth control and sterilization. And in extreme cases, the extermination of different groups of people. So, for instance, Margaret Sanger, she was a birth control activist, for instance, but she was also a eugenicist, and she based a lot of her ideas on social Darwinism, and she gave lectures to the, you know, KKK, for instance, and she, you know, supported a lot of these beliefs or communicated them widely that, you know, people with less desirable traits um, should be, you know, eliminated from the population. So, you know, just as, um, you know, I tell my students, you can think of, you know, the social sciences as akin to the natural sciences, where the natural sciences look at the natural world, so biology and different things of that nature. You know, the social sciences look at human beings and their interactions with one another. And so social Darwinism, you know, is just, you know, the kind of human aspect of it, looking at, you know, how human beings are assigned, you know, different characteristics and what it means um, for those different groups and for the potential functioning of society, we could say. Okay, okay. So in regards to the functioning of society, who would be a social Darwinist in the society and how would they interact with the world, with society? Herbert Spencer, 
for instance, use Darwin's theory on natural selection to explain racial differences between uh, different people. So, you know, he's a great example of, you know, how someone would interact with the world in this area. And Spencer argued that the idea of this idea of necessary adaptation from primitive stages of social life through natural selection. And he kind of argued there's this social equivalent of a struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest. And so he believed, for instance, that marriages between different races should be forbidden because biological evolution had produced dominant and primitive races with different mental capacities. So if he was here in our world today, he would support, you know, preventing people, you know, from different racial and ethnic groups from, you know, getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, he's a key example of social Darwinist. And, you know, it's very interesting. People today act as if advocating for social Darwinism is bad. But I think it is pretty obvious that social Darwinism has been upon us for longer than we are willing to admit because of we may not want to face the irrationality of our behavior, of our nature. It may not be the most popular ideology because no one wants to feel inferior to the next man. But the fact is that our society has classism, racism, and institutions with oppression built into their structure. Still present today. Yes. Um, and that's a testament to the presence of social Darwinism in today's society. So, Francis Galton asserted that an organism's most important attributes must be biological rather than shaped by the environment or experience, nature over nurture. Do you think this holds true today? I always say in my sociology courses when I'm teaching about socialization that both things matter. And so it's a both and rather than either or. But the thing is, in our society, we tend to focus on nature and explaining differences between groups of people and social phenomena. And I think we do this because it's just easier to do. Or it could also be a result of just a belief that maybe scientific perspectives are more reliable than, um, and I should say, perspectives in the natural sciences are more reliable than perspectives, for instance, in these social sciences. But I do think it is a little bit easier to say that, for instance, black men play basketball because there's you know some specific trait they have. It's innate within them versus like really thinking through critically why that might be the case. And so, yes, you know, black men play basketball at higher rates than, you know, other groups of people. But um, that could be a result of social phenomenon. So black men are more likely to live in poor environments. So that might be one of the options that they have available to them. So we were just talking about before the interview issues in our educational system and what you are exposed to does shape your reality. Mm-hmm. And so playing basketball might seem like a serious way out versus becoming a professor, for instance, because 
We see a lot of black male basketball players, but we don't see a lot of black professors. Another example that I talk about a lot is there's a belief that, for instance, Asian Americans are like naturally entrepreneurial, that there's like this trait within them. There's a, he was at Howard University at the time, but his name's Frank Wu, and he has a book called Yellow, and he talks about this in his work. And um, yeah, there's this perspective that, oh, you know, Asian Americans, they, they work hard, the model minority myth. So they are just naturally hardworking. They make something out of nothing. They open up stores and shops and dry cleaners and, you know, other businesses. And people don't take into account the reality that some of them came here voluntarily and they pulled their money together and they opened up these businesses because they were blocked from other forms of employment based on like white racism in our society. And so they found a way to make it within the society that they were a part of that was oppressing them. And, you know, kind of like what I said with black basketball players, you know, they found a way to make it within the context that is, you know, hostile to them. But that's one thing that I think it's important for people to understand is that um, things that we think, you know, are just simply based on, you know, the group that someone's born in. It's also based on social realities um, in our society. You referenced eugenics. Um, I brought up Francis Galton as well. He is known as the father of eugenics. Um, And eugenics is the discipline of good breeding in humans. If you can breed a better dog or a horse, then why not a human, apparently? Um, This is the idea that the gene pool of humans can be improved if the less fit, quote unquote, did not have children. And you can imagine what that kind of ideology led to. Mm. Eugenicists have all of these things in common in the context of their society. Eugenics defines valuable members of society and encourages reproduction. It defines unvaluable members of society and discourages reproduction. And also, like you said, they discourage the mixing of races. And kind of present today, the socioeconomic class you were born into carries with it the ideas of what your life should be like. There's even a number associated with your existence on actuarial tables that calculate your worth. And what you can contribute to society is determined not by you, but by today's self-proclaimed gatekeepers of society. Driven by a fear that births of inferior people would lead to weak or criminally degenerate adults, some states in the United States introduced forcible sterilization laws um, starting in 1907. And they were mostly used to justify the sterilization of already incarcerated groups and those with different abilities. It sounds like I want to make the world a better place, you know, quote unquote, but this led to much tragedy. And they kind of justified it with this analogy saying like, Let's prune this tree that we have called our society. Um, We're going to get all these unwanted branches off of here and we're going to try to perfect it. Mm -hmm. It's admirable looking from the outside in as much as you 
if you can disassociate yourself from humanity, you know, but like, that's not really possible for me personally, or like not too many humans I know, you know? Um, so late 1800s, early 1900s, scientists were seeking to selectively breed and weed out the traits of criminality, illness, imbecility, height, color, skin, you know, like, mm -hmm. words like moron, imbecile, and idiot literally came into this language from eugenics. Mm -hmm. And so much controversy occurred behind this forcible sterilization led to euthanasia in Nazi Germany. So the more you analyze the history as well as the current situation in society, pushback on social Darwinism is understandable as it looks bad on a resume to say the least. But does selective acknowledgement of our nature and nurture benefit or hinder our advancement as a civilized species? I think it's important. So going back to your discussion, when you were talking about the reasons that some people were, you know, basically sterilized mm -hmm. um, for having disabilities, you know, or being incarcerated, or we know people of color. So, you know, there's research showing that Native American women, Latinas, and black women are the most likely to be sterilized even today. And it happens at higher rates than people would, um, mm -hmm. you know, even imagine. But we need to look at or think about how we value different individuals. So you talked about humanity, but also this is an issue of definition. So what is intelligence? You know, is something that I always think about and how do you define it? And with this, okay, let me say with this Francis Galton, but Francis Galton, he made these tests to explore different groups of yes. people. <laughs> and it's just like, but what he defined as intelligent, someone else might not define as intelligent. Yeah. And what he values, someone else might not value. And there's studies um, I've read, like, in so I teach social psychology as well. And humor is, you know, a form of intelligence. So you have to be quick and you have to know how to read the crowd and different things of that nature. But that's not something that we consider to be a form of intelligence. You know, usually if someone is really fun and we'd be like, oh, you stupid, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And I think we really have to question these definitions that have been given. So even like with Francis Galton, the test that he gave, like if you give a test that only has English to someone who, you know, only, you know, speaks and reads, you know, Chinese or something, then like, of course, they're not going to do well yeah. on it, you know? And so like, it's interesting that he could come up with these different views and people would take them, you know, as fact or as reliable. And W.E.B. Du Bois talks about this in his work. So he talked about, you know, at the very end of the 18th century and then the beginning um, the 19th century um, in his work, how a lot of these people were making things up. They weren't using, you know, valid scientific Science. methods. They were kind of theorizing armchair theorizing, as people would say, rather than engaging in empirical work. 
And that's why, that's what led him to do his empirical study, the Philadelphia Negro, because he said, people are saying that black people are inferior and that they, you know, are criminal and they don't value education. And that's why they're in their current predicament, but they haven't stepped foot in a area with black people. Mm -hmm. And so in the Philadelphia Negro, he's like, I'm going to use census data and survey data and talk to people and see, okay, question and ask the question. So why are African-Americans in this predicament? And through his research, you know, he found that African-Americans weren't being paid as much as their white counterparts at work. And so that, you know, hindered their ability to live in nice neighborhoods. They experienced discrimination in health and that lowered their life expectancy. He found so many disparities between different groups of people. And, you know, basically what he said is the issue is that we live in a society that's structured in a way that provides benefits to white individuals, but, you know, we don't provide benefits to people of color. And, you know, not to be too harsh on like someone like Francis Gowden, because, you know, with time, new technologies arise and people do new research. But I do think there's an issue when we, you can respect the work someone did with and lay it to rest. But we've said, we've continued to accept it, yeah. the work that they've done. And it turns up subtly and like vividly in different ways in our society. And so we just, we believe things like race to be like an essential biological fact when really it's a social thing. And that's what W.E.B. Du Bois was talking mm-hmm. about in his work. And then also some, um, you know, anthropologists, you know, during his time who were also kind of questioning like, okay, like you're coming up with these, you know, perspectives, but like, what are you basing them on? So I think, um, you know, kind of focusing on that reality is important that, you know, we always have to question, um, you know, the assumptions that we're making. And then going back to your question, it seems like you were kind of asking about like, going back to this, you know, um, tension between nature versus nurture Mm. a little bit more. And again, I think we uh, overestimate again, the, the impact of like certain traits. So we can't map like traits of intelligence or being good at playing certain instruments or, you know, playing sports onto like particular racial groups. Mm -hmm. So, but people believe it to be true. But here's the thing, why we can't be too critical of people is our reality reinforces the scientific perspectives that are out in our society today. Y'all, he put quotes on scientific perspective, just so you know, he did the quotation marks. So, I mean, if you believe that, if you hear that black people are less intelligent, and then you see in the research that there's this huge achievement gap between, you know, white people and, you know, black people, 
then it makes it appear to be a reality. Mm-hmm. But there's this book, I'm actually using it in my class right now, but my social stratification course called Race in the Schoolyard by Amanda Lewis. And one of her goals is to explore how racial realities or racial um, patterns are reproduced within the school based on interactions between students and teachers. So what she argues is that we focus so much on the the quantitative or the statistical aspect of research. So there are statistics showing that black students don't do as well on exams or they don't do as well in school. And then also Hispanic students as well. And so she went and, you know, conducted a study at three different schools in California. Um, some were predominantly white, some were, you know, mixed, some emphasized like bilingual education. And, you know, what she found is that some schools completely just ignored issues of race. They act like they didn't exist. You know, the teachers were engaging in patterns that made the educational space like hostile for like young kids of color. And then there were spaces where, and they completely in in that same space, um, like a predominantly white school or predominantly white staff, race was just ignored. And then there's another school where race was more apparent. It was more mixed um, with black and Latino students, but it was the staff members of color like talking about it. And, you know, there was this tension, you know, around race, but still it was really difficult to discuss it. And then, you know, there's another school where they emphasized race and they talked about it and they made it important, but it was still difficult to make change around it because we live in a society that's structured, you know, based around race. And so even if you in an institution try to do right, you still are competing with these other outside forces that make it difficult. But what she's really arguing is that the patterns that happen outside of society happen in the school, and then they reproduce the patterns that happen outside of the school. So we believe that black boys are disruptive and they don't take school seriously, so we monitor them more and we're harsher towards them in school. And then that makes them not feel comfortable in the space, they're getting sent to the office more, and then they may not finish school or do as well in school, and then they go out into the world and they don't have the skills to succeed. And so it's kind of like this loop, you know, that happens. So I think it's so important, again, and this relates to what I said, you know, uh, earlier about, you know, Asian Americans, you know, being perceived as naturally entrepreneurial or black men in sports, Um, again, if I could say it to people over and over again, we have to understand how nurture, how behaviors and the environment and, you know, um, just social happenings influence, you know, different behaviors um, or different, you know, things that happen in our society. So. Yes, sir. I definitely agree. So when we only pay attention to certain things pertaining to our existence all in all nature and nurture it doesn't give you the full scope of things and it allows situations to to manifest like what we're experiencing today the the gap in quote-unquote intelligence groups of people being more well off or less well off than others 
the truth is relative, you know, even with this is even shown in science. I actually was having a conversation with my astronomy teacher because she was teaching us about the scientific method. And, you know, we only see a very small percentage of the visible light spectrum. There are literally things in front of us on the regular all around us on another plane of existence that we cannot perceive because we don't have the abilities with our senses. You know, we would need extra senses to perceive these things. And this is what allows a truth to be relative. What you see when you when we look at what, what you see when you look at me is simply the shadow of my higher self, you know, and with that being said, you're only seeing parts of me. I'm only seeing parts of you, pieces. Reality is what the majority label as objectively true. But do you think that humans are even capable of objective observation if everybody literally sees things differently and we all have our own predispositions? What color is what color is your phone right there, your phone case? So I think it's green. I don't know, you know? <laughs> now, don't trust me, though, because sometimes people say I'm a little colorblind. So. But, yeah, like, do you, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think that we are capable of this, this type of observation, objective observation? Mm-hmm. And this is such an important question based on the political and social climate that we're in. Because sometimes I feel like I'm in a movie or <laughs> I'm not in reality based on some of the things, I'll just be honest, that I hear on Fox News. I can relate. I can relate. I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> I was on a flight home the other day from, I had to go to St. Louis for a funeral um, in January, mm -hmm. I believe. And a lady was watching Fox News on the, you know, the screen. I wanted to get up and turn it off and just be like, how can you watch this? Because it just, it's not a reality. There's, it's factually like so much research. They just put out so much stuff that's factually incorrect. But it goes to this, this question of, are we capable of objective observation? And so it made me think of, as I was reading this question, about a book that I read recently by Esper Klein. It's called um, Why We're Polarized. And so I like him a lot. He was on bots. Now he's with New York Times. Mm. Um, and in this book, he's trying to really get at, like he, he said that we focus a lot on like the process and like, we're hopeful and we're like, okay, people might act right. They might vote for something that makes sense, you know? But he says, we kind of need to focus on like the end point. Like the reality is that people seem to make choices that a lot of times are just irrational. And a lot of it just has to do with, we have this, you know, aversion to outgroup members. And so what he's talking about in this book is sometimes we don't understand why Republicans vote for certain things, why Democrats vote for certain things, you know, and he, he looked at research and it's so interesting because sometimes if a Democrat supports something, so let's just say like the topic of abortion, if Democrats 
um, were against abortion. But he's finding that a lot of people in the Democratic Party would be against abortion. And so it just has to do with the party. It's not based on one's principles. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing, if a Republican said, oh, abortion is good, then Republicans would, you know, say accept it. Accept it. It's not about like one's principles. A lot of it has to do with sticking with the in-group. And even like in social psychology, like research about in-group favoritism. So there's research by a guy named Henry Tackfell. You know, he found in his research that we just, we dislike our group members and the way that he studied this. Um, one, one example he gave is, if you simply flip a coin and you put people into a group based on, you know, whether it's heads or tails, and one group goes into a red group and one group, you know, is blue, the red group will start hating the blue group just because they're in a different group. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all arbitrary. And it's the same thing I think we're seeing. I think it goes back to this whole conversation that we're having. I think we could say it's closely tied or loosely tied to, you know, like favoring the in group. So why did, you know, Her- Herbert Spencer and Francis Galton have this perception that certain groups of people are better than other groups of people? And I do think that some of it, you know, is a result of this, like favoring people who are like them. Now, we do mm-hmm. know that. You know, they were against like maybe like Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans. So not all, you know, white people fit into the group that they accepted. And we know there was a a Holocaust. And so definitely white people, you know, in some context are not accepting of other white people. But it's just so interesting because, you know, um, Tackville, he talks about like we exaggerate the similarities among people in our in-group. But we also exaggerate the differences between people in our out group. Mm. And it could just be, and I think about like this whole conversation, I think about when I talk about race in my, um, my intro class during the uh, week about the chapter about race, or you know, if I'm teaching race and ethnicity. And it's like, why did Europeans define black people as being dirty and savage and, you know, um, they were trying to make sense of the world. And it's the same thing with Francis Galton and Herbert Spencer. They were trying to make sense of the world. Like they were writing during a time of massive industrialization and people moving, you know, so people come into great, people were going to Great Britain. People mm-hmm. were moving to, you know, certain spaces in Europe that were industrializing. There was a lot of people moving to urban areas to work in certain, you know, occupations. So you had these groups having more frequent contact with one another. And they were trying to make sense of these changes. It's like, who are you? You speak a different language. Your skin's a little bit darker. I don't know what's going on here. So these categorizations that they made helped them make sense of the world and be comfortable in the new reality that they're experiencing. And I think a similar thing is happening today with this Democrats versus Republicans. And I think that some people are having trouble with the reality that people of color are, I'm not gonna say take it over, but you know, (laughs) there are more of us and people just don't know how to handle it. And so people want control. It's the same thing with the, um, 
with some people not wanting to vaccinate their children. Yeah. They want to have some control. So, you know, even thinking back to, and it relates to what I was saying before, but within the U.S. context, and I'm thinking about, you know, Margaret um, Sanger, Sanger and her, you know, work with the KKK and different things of that nature. Black people were moving from the South to the North because during Reconstruction, and you know, after they were, you know, emancipated from slavery, and white people were trying to figure out, okay, well, what does this mean for us? And then also to kind of have some control. And a lot of these practices, they're just social control. So, you know, sterilizing black people, controlling where they can live and different things of that nature. But it's just like industrialization brought black people to cities, but also Europeans to cities in the U.S. too. And black people were moving to the north around the same time that Europeans were coming to the U.S., you know, to work in cities and escape oppression and other issues that were happening during that time. And so, again, we have people across the globe trying to figure out, okay, who are they? What are they doing? What do they mean for me? What do they mean for the future? So, unfortunately, some people, they came up with some crazy ideas, for lack of better words, right yeah. now, to um, justify their existence. You know, mm-hmm, Francis yeah. Galton, um, <clears throat> Herbert Spencer, Charles Darwin, all very privileged individuals, you know, yeah. um, um, born into very wealthy families. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that every observation we make and every claim that we make is, as you said, a means to justify our existence. We want to know that we're real, that this is real. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we try to build on the reference point that we're given. But many times we don't consider the fact that the only fact really is that we don't know the origin. We are not the origin. We're not the beginning and we won't be the end. Mm-hmm. And we tend to make claims based on observations from this reference point, calling it the origin. Mm-hmm. And this is... This is what makes the truth relative. So with this history attached to our country and the human race as a whole, can you see us overcoming the innate behaviors exhibited through eugenics and social Darwinism with it being an aspect of our social nature? Or are these ideas here to stay? I've wrestled with these questions so much, especially just as a result of who I am, as a result of who we are as people, navigating the spaces that we inhabit. And I'm always hopeful that things will get better because I want to believe that we all, I know that we all have a space and we are of value we're a part of humanity and we, you know, have made great contributions and we will continue to do so. However, our political reality makes me nervous and skeptical. And it's difficult. Sometimes I ask myself, am I making an impact with my students? And, you know, we started on this conversation before the interview, but Sometimes I believe that maybe the content isn't as important as 
like how I interact with my students and what I do to make sure that they succeed in what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And I know that that'll only do so much, but collectively, you know, if we all play our part, you know, there's good. But I do know that we are fighting against some serious forces in our society that are afraid of the reality that we deserve to be here and be heard and accepted. And I just think, you know, the, the election of, and I don't know how much you, know, you, if you even want to veer in this direction, but you know, it's interesting that right after we had our first black president that we get someone like Trump, you know, in office. Um, but yeah, our Very political climate, yeah, our political climate makes me nervous. It makes me think we have a lot of work to do. Truly, I think it was it was necessary, honestly. For um, I'm I'm really appreciative that that occurred okay. because we were shown this idea that oh man, we we come far, you know, and then Trump showed us like he was able to to resonate with people and bring a side of them out that was already there, mm-hmm. you know, and it showed us like, you know, like, come on now, be realistic, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the, at the core of it all, I feel like we are not constructing meaning for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're not really taught how to read. Yes. We know how to, how to, how to say the words that we see, and how to understand the meaning that is constructed for us, yeah. you know, like, like what you were saying about, okay, this is my group. We believe this. Done, done, done. Nobody. I'm not gonna say nobody. I don't like these absolute statements. Please forgive me. It is very few and far between that we are constructing meaning for ourselves, and this is the value of true education. Um the original meaning of education, which means to bring out, eh, and duco, to bring out from within. Um, and the redefinition of it turned it into basically like a manipulation of the behavior exhibited by an individual, you know, modification of behavior rather than aiding someone in being who they are meant to be. Um, just that alone, we are allowing people to not only construct meaning for us, but to construct our realities and what we mean to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that um, it would spark a situation like what occurred and what occurs consistently in politics and just everywhere around us. It's all connected. There is no separation. So is there anything that you would suggest as far as what we should be doing about all of this? Or can we do anything about it? Please don't say we can't do anything about it. That's the easy way. I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear that. You've okay. been giving me so much gold. I need, I need the golden ticket. I'll tell you, I'm hungry and I don't have any energy to answer any more questions. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> I think there's so, so many answers. And even the answer that I had you know, reading the book by Ezra Klein, like challenged me because he said, so I believe I'm like, people need to learn to think critically. 
we have to teach our children how to read. If people, you know, in an all-white school are taught the nature of stereotypes, where they come from, and they get explanations kind of like what I was discussing about, you know, people of color and the predicaments that we're in, maybe that'll help them. But Ezra Klein said that people who are really intelligent, like they learn to find information that supports what they believe. So if they believe that vaccines are of the devil and they, you know, are going to um, put a chip in us or something, they're going to find stuff to support that. Yeah. Um, but I still have to hold out. I believe that if people are more educated and possibly there's more interaction between different groups of people and we give more resources to people who are marginalized, it could help in different ways. So I study public housing, for instance, and they have all these policies that move the poor to lower poverty areas, but they don't work because no one wants poor people living among them, especially poor people of color. And then another approach is to tear down like public housing, for instance, and then build mixed income communities with people from a range of incomes. And my thing is, and some people like in critical urban studies have made the same argument as well, but why do we have to send people to outside of their neighborhoods or bring in middle income people? Why can't we just, it takes money to do run these programs. Why can't we just make the spaces better, you know? Because it almost is saying, like, you're not good enough. You have to go live among a different group of people. And normally it's white people or bring white people in for you to be better. I just, I think about this so much. And I just feel like we spend so much money on things that I'm not going to say are unimportant important but they in the grand scheme of things don't help the situation that we're in so if we made our schools better for instance we live we say we live in a meritocracy but we don't all have the same access to education so could we just start with making sure that every student has access to a good education which would require money and resources we have the money, we just don't have the will. And mm. I think it's the same thing with these perspectives that have been put out, and then people continue on with them. So why are researchers still treating race as something that is like a variable that really, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that essential to explaining social phenomenon. I just think of like research in a medical field, for instance, and a lot of things that we think is based on race, it's not based on race. It's based on geography, you know, or, you know, maybe body size yeah. or whatever. So a pill might work well in African-Americans, but it's not because we're African-American. It could just be because we tend to have bigger bodies. We're more likely to be obese and a white person it might not work as well because they're smaller and so there might be more of a reaction. So I think really questioning 
And this is something that would probably be radical, according to a lot of people. I think that people of color should be, in the American context, should be treated as a vulnerable group who needs to be protected. And what we say and do to people of color should be carefully, like, monitored and, like, we should be treated delicately. So just like with the Holocaust, you can't go around, you know, saying that it didn't happen in certain places in Europe. And, you know, I went to Rwanda to learn about the genocide. And you cannot deny that the genocide, like, you can't say that there was not a genocide. Like, that's offensive. And they actively, like, work to respect the history. And I think that we need to do that here. So when you say that people can say whatever they want, I don't agree with that. And that gets into freedom of speech. But, like, no, you cannot just walk around saying that black people are stupid, you know, um, or that Asian Americans need to go back to where they came from, you know. These things that people say, and we know from the pandemic they have meeting because you all read all these stories about older, you know, Asian Americans getting attacked and younger ones too because of things that Trump said while he was in office. So the things that people say, they have meaning. And I think that we, people need to be held to account for what they say. And I think that could help. Um, I'm not saying that people won't forget but when you keep bringing it up again, you know, of course people are going to have that perspective. So, yeah, I, I really think that we have to protect. But that would come with acknowledging, and we have a hard time of acknowledging that we've treated different groups of people terribly in our society. And then the whole conversation about books and critical race theory and mm. how there's attacks on information. And so it's just like I don't want to you know, make it seem like it's all negative, but I guess I offered a solution. Yeah. So, I mean, I see what we're up against, but I just feel like if we, I don't know, even teachers, when they're dealing with those young children, dang, they go through so much, and I have an opportunity to give them a little bit of peace and positivity in this interaction. And that's how I feel, like when I'm in the classroom, I might be the only positive like experience a student has within this con and it you know this context at CSU. I'm sorry to say, it. and it could be because of my race. It could be because of my teaching style. It could be, you know, as a result of the an assortment of things. But I'm going to actively try. And there's an if there's an active effort, you know, um, and I think that people have to put in the energy, just like. As a man, there are things that I don't experience, that women experience. And there are things that I can't say that you know women can say. And I'm okay with that. And I think other groups of people or more people need to be okay with, you know, understand your positionality and be careful in what you say and what you do um, because it has meaning. So I don't know. We could talk about this stuff for days and days and days. You know, you've given me <laughs> an amazing, an amazing response. Truly, um, what do you think? Don't leave me on the. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear from the youngins. <laughs> well, well, well. Well, first of all, I can definitely see us overcoming this on um, this behavior. You know, everything from the margin moves to the center. Anything that was once 
unpopular will be popular sooner or later. Um, it's inevitable. This is the cycle of things. And what I would suggest personally um, to people that identify as black people, first of all, we have to understand that according to the Declaration of Human Rights, you know, you don't have rights when you identify as a color, only when you identify as a nationality will you, will you have rights in an international court of law. And we have arbitrarily been like deviated from this train of thought. You know, we're bombarded with this ideology of being black when at the root of it all, who are you really? You know, what are you really? Um, I, and I, I love it as, as, a, as something that we rally around and connect over, you know, but the thing is, if we want to really get to the root of all of this, then we have to confront these uncomfortable situations that a lot of people don't really want to talk about, you know, and, and with the concept of race being something that literally was created as a social construct just for the justification of oppression and colonization and European world domination, you know, like let's take that, let's step away from that framework and stop trying to conversate within this, within this context that isn't even meant for us to be having this conversation in, you know, and, and just be careful about the way we're using this language, you know, understanding where it came from, why you're speaking it, you know, and we start from there we can we can do so much as far as overcoming these these ideologies that pertain towards like the tragedy of the commons like the selfish nature of man um one man thinking themselves better than the other i personally don't feel like that's our nature you put a bunch of babies in a room right after they've been born from their mother's womb and put them all in a group together and just leave them alone as they grow up i'm pretty sure that me personally, I'm willing to bet that there isn't going to be a hierarchical structure created. You know, I think that's something that we, that's nurture. That's something that society puts on us. I don't think that naturally a child is going to think I'm better than you coming out of the womb. But I mean, of course, this research has never been done, but that's why I asked the question. That's why I present the, the concept. Please don't take children from their mothers you know that's not what i'm saying but i just want us to think critically about what we're saying and what we believe and honestly what makes you better than the next man you know um understand the measuring stick you're using whether it be intelligence whether it be value you call money or whatever your value system is understand that it's different for another person and that makes no one better than the other, better than the next. But society decides what the what reality is. The, the majority decides. And if there is anything that we want to do about that, we must be honest with ourselves first. That's just what I say. It starts within. You want to, you got to be the change you want to see in the world. Point blank, period. Mm-hmm. End of rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. Um, this has been such a... Rejuvenating conversation, truly. I'm like, you know, I ate nothing today. I'm going off three hours of sleep, but I'm so happy that I've been able to share this time with you. And um, I so much 
I have so much appreciation for the insight, for the knowledge that you've given me. Because this is what I love right here. I love to connect. I love to to breed light, you know, and you're really bright over there. Is there anything else that you would like to say to my loves, my listeners? Just say uh, to y'all students, keep your heads up. You can do it. And um, yeah, we're in this together and we'll make it through. <laughs> and with that being said, y'all, please give yourself grace and give the world around you grace as well. We're all learning and growing at the pace that is meant for us. Take care. Love. Man, man, man. You know, you talked about critical race theory towards the end. It's so interesting. I have an interview tomorrow with uh, the assistant district attorney. Uproar Radio is produced with the cooperation of the student staff at WCUG Cougar Radio and the CSU Department of Communication. Thanks to Department Chair Dr. Dana Gibson and WCUG Faculty Advisor Dr. Bruce Gatt for their help in airing this show. Brian Griggs Jr. produced this episode and editor this week is show. Operations Director of WCUG Cougar Radio is Show Urakawa. Our programming manager is Lewis Myers. Marketing manager is Logan Swaim. Our production manager is Austin Slocum. You can listen to this show and more online by searching for our call letters, WCUG. Thanks for listening to this episode of Upper Radio.